This is Backstory. I'm Peter Ronoff. More than 80 million people watched the first presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, making it the most watched presidential debate in American history. But Americans have always loved a good debate. In the late 18th century, debating clubs were all the rage among teenage boys and young men. Some kinds of questions that they would have debated were, should public brothels be tolerated? Or, which is better for society, ambition or avarice? And in 1858, thousands of Americans flocked to hear Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas as they sparred over slavery and the future of the Union. Coming up on Backstory, a history of political debates. Don't go away. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey there, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Hey, guys. We're going to start the show today with a marquee debate of 1936. I respectfully address myself to Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a candidate for re-election to the presidency of the United States. This is Senator Arthur Vandenberg, President Roosevelt's opponent in that radio debate. For half an hour, an aggressive and fiery Vandenberg challenged Roosevelt. He pressed the president about his New Deal policies to ease the Great Depression. Why are we wrong in asserting that when all Americans are properly fed and clothed and housed, there will be busy work for all? defended business interests he believed were under attack. How about the traditions of free enterprise and free men? And grilled FDR on the U.S. Constitution. May I ask you, Mr. Roosevelt, what you said regarding the Constitution of the United States when you were inaugurated as president? To which Roosevelt replied? I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who solemnly swear but I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And well, we'll hold, 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 hold on wait, to your horses. Wait, time out, time out. You know, this sounds oddly like an inaugural address to me. Yeah, what do you think, Peter? Oh, yeah. Well, I said it was billed as a debate. I didn't say it was an actual <laughs> debate. If you were listening at home, I'm not sure you'd know that it was fake. Certainly if you kind of turned on the radio in the middle of it, you would have thought that it was real. This is historian Jill Lepore. She says that Republicans had tried to get the president to debate his policies as he ran for re-election in 1936. And he refused to. He, he, he hemmed and hawed about it. He loved the radio. He thought the radio was a really effective way for him to communicate with voters. But the president already had a radio outlet. His regular fireside chats enabled him to communicate directly with the electorate without being challenged. So out of tremendous frustration, Senator Arthur Vandenberg came up with a scheme to essentially debate FDR on the radio in this hodgepodge, pretty unethical way. That hodgepodge way involved Vandenberg posing questions, playing portions of FDR's speeches, and then rebutting them. And the whole thing was spliced together as if Vandenberg and FDR had had a staged debate. 
And in fact, it was hard to listen to because of the many radio stations that were supposed to be broadcasting it. A large number of them, and good for them, refused to when they figured out, when they, once they learned what it was, that it wasn't an actual debate. It's no surprise that Vandenberg would have marketed this radio address as a debate. Radio debates were hugely popular in the 1930s. Many broadcasters and civic organizations saw the new medium of radio as a tool for democracy and voter education. The best example of this is a program called America's Town Meeting of the Air, which I think began in 1935, I think it was NBC, and it lasted for decades. It, It turned out to be this incredible success. Tonight here in America's town meeting, we are to take up that moot question. What made these debates so powerful was that they emerged at a time when most of the press was still overtly partisan. Democrats read Democratic newspapers and Republicans read Republican newspapers. And one of the promises of the radio was that it would transcend this polarization. It sounds so reminiscent of what we're enduring now. So the producers of America's Town Meeting of the Air said quite explicitly, the reason we're doing this is we're going to get Republicans and Democrats up there on the same stage. We're going to get people who have opposing positions, and the audience is going to have to decide which of these arguments is a better argument. Roosevelt's opponents were so frustrated by his refusal to debate precisely because they knew there was a big audience for these debates. But FDR would not budge. His claim there was a sitting president could let slip a state secret and should not participate in something so spontaneous as a debate where you need to speak off the cuff live. It wasn't until 1960 that the two major party candidates for president agreed to debate, this time on television. The Nixon-Kennedy debates finally gave the public a chance to hear and see the two men face off. Well, not really, according to Lepore. What they agreed to do, and the only thing they were willing to do when they agreed to debate, was essentially hold a joint press conference. And the two candidates would not speak to one another, but would instead take turns fielding questions from a panel of reporters. And even ABC News was pretty unhappy about it and refused to call the Nixon-Kennedy debate a debate. They billed it as a joint appearance because it was not a debate. Like FDR, Lepore says, most nominees for president don't like the unpredictability of an authentic debate. Anyone who's sponsored the presidential debates has tried really hard to get the candidates to speak to one another, to refute one another, to challenge one another, and have have had very little success. It's really the candidates in the campaigns that want to have this joint press conference instead of an actual debate. Lepore says there's an irony here. Despite candidate reluctance, political sparring and debate have been a crucial part of American civic culture since the republic's first days. That's how the government was devised in the first place. That's what the Constitutional Convention was. That's what the ratifying conventions were. It's not possible to have self-government without debate. Civic life in a democracy is founded on debate. We have to be willing to meet face-to-face and argue about ideas and support our arguments with evidence. I think that's true from the first colonial assemblies to the present. As Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump prepare for a rematch Sunday evening, we're going to take a closer look at the traditions of debate in America. We'll hear why Americans latched on to the epic debates between Abraham Lincoln and Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas in 1858. 
We'll also discuss the legacy of slavery and race in America through a memorable encounter between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley in 1965. And we'll chat with former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. She helped Vice President Biden prepare for his debate with Alaska Governor Sarah Palin in 2008. But first, Jill Lepore mentioned the debates at the Constitutional Convention between politicians like James Madison and George Mason, but they weren't the only ones who locked horns. In the early years of the Republic, young men across the former colonies created their own debating societies. They were modeled on college debate clubs, but anyone could join, and they offered members a lot more than just camaraderie. The ideal was that learning to speak by debating was connected to the process of making yourself. This is historian Carolyn Eastman. Making yourself in business, making yourself in society. So learning to speak well was closely tied to a man's professional advancement. Eastman says the young men who joined these debate clubs were in their mid-teens to early 20s. Most were not from well-educated or privileged backgrounds. They were simply young men on the make. Some of them were artisans or journeyman artisans, and they were learning how to sell their wares. Or others were teachers or doctors in training or lawyers or ministers in training. And so being around other young men who were similarly ambitious Mm -hmm. helped improve everyone's manners and their their sense of mutual knowledge. I think the ideal at the heart of all this was that it made society more civilized overall. And, and young men need this desperately, wouldn't you say, even today? Absolutely. <laughs> and, but it's also, I mean, if you think about it, learning how to speak well benefited people on all levels. Right. So, Carolyn, you might say that these are adolescent young men trying to figure out how to make their way in the world. And the world itself is highly volatile. Things are changing. You might even say that the United States is uh, an adolescent new nation uh, figuring out who it is. And uh, this convergence of the personal and the political is very powerful in the case of your club members. That's right. I mean, what a club looked like was they probably met once a week They usually met for up to four hours on one evening. So it was a long evening of Mm. camaraderie and messing around and probably drinking and eating. But crucial to the formation of these clubs and these would-be self-made men was that they were also secret. If you made a mistake, you could nevertheless learn from it within this kind of secret environment. You couldn't interrupt one another And the idea of having everyone participate helped to foster the idea that everyone had a place. And so Mm -hmm. if you think about the debating society as a kind of a metaphor for something larger, it sets up the notion that all people have a place in the conversation of the day. What were some of the things they argued about? Could you set up uh, some of the debates that they were having? They often sound whimsical. That is, some kinds of questions that they would have debated were, is polygamy useful to society? Or should public brothels be tolerated? Which is better for society? I wonder these are secret, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is better for society, ambition or avarice? And so in all of these ways, 
these are not necessarily serious questions. And Carolyn, as you've suggested, there's also an art to listening and being entertained by the exchange of ideas and critically evaluating who the winners and losers are. And the audience is really important in this whole culture you're talking about. That's right. I mean, we might express real amazement that people would listen for what it was at four hours to Abraham right. Lincoln and, right. and Stephen Douglas debate. We now listen in very different ways than 19th century Americans would have. But nevertheless, I think the the mode remains crucial to how we think through political issues. Uh, that's an interesting point, Carolyn. How, how would your audiences in the early republic and into the 19th century listen differently? There's a an art to it. It's not something you just are born with. Well, I think that it's too simple to say that today we're more moved by personal style. But we've lost, I think, that notion that people had in the 18th and 19th century for trying to come to a conclusion based on the arguments presented, Mm -hmm. whether or not you might objectively feel one way or the other on an issue. That's no longer a part of the way we learn. Would you say, Carolyn, then that the audiences that you've studied want to hear an argument unfold and they're patient enough to be there for three or four hours? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Well, Carolyn, you're a young tyros with their oratorical skills honed in their clubs, uh, go on to careers and business and law. Uh, they also become politicians. Uh, how important is the oratory that they learned in these clubs to American politics? Well, debating societies remained really popular through a good chunk of the 19th century, and debate would ultimately become a feature of the two-party system in the U.S., mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, idea right. that people need to be persuaded, that they need to have an actual person standing in front of them making arguments and persuading their peers in a way that both demonstrates respect for the people listening and an eagerness to persuade them is a really crucial aspect of how our political system looks even today. Carolyn Eastman is a historian at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of A Nation of Speechifiers, Making an American Public After the Revolution. Earlier, we heard from Jill Lepore. She's a historian at Harvard University and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Backstory listeners, listen up. This is a listener challenge, and it's a challenge for our upcoming show on the history of horror. And to help us challenge you, we have our producer, Nina Ernest. Hi. Hey, Nina. Hey, guys. So before I tell you the challenge, I'm going to tell you a story. So Mm. I am from rural Iowa, small town, and there's a local legend we have about a girl named Lucinda. 
The story goes that Lucinda, in the late 19th century, was supposed to get married. She was supposed to run off with the man. But when she went to go meet him, he didn't show up. And he either didn't show up because he abandoned her or because his wagon wheel got stuck. The details are a little murky. Oh, not that. Stick in the mud. I know. (laughs) Either way, she threw herself off the bluffs down on Stony Hollow Road. So the local myth is that if you go to Stony Hollow Road and you call her name three times, she will appear. And if she appears and drops a rose, then you will die the next day. So a lot of people in my high school, this was a big thing that people would go check it out. I just called a friend and she said that she was going to do it, but she chickened out. So are there big blank places in your high school annual where people died from uh, <laughs> getting on the wrong side of the story? No, maybe there were just no roses dropped. They saw her, but there were no roses. My goodness. Ooh, well, Nina, intense. Nina, I, I mesmerized, but where do our listeners come in? Okay. Yeah, what's, what's the challenge? So this is a phenomenon that folklorists and anthropologists are now calling legend tripping. And the idea is that it's oral storytelling and local mythology that sets up these repeatable experiences that are seen as a rite of passage for young people, which is why it was all these people in my high school who were like, we're going to go see Lucinda tonight. We want to know your local legend tripping stories. We want to know what those things are that were your rites of passage that you said, well, we're going to go call this person's name three times and whatever supernatural experience was supposed to happen to you. We want to hear them. We want to know your name. We want to know where the legend is and what the legend says. So you should leave a comment on our website, backstoryradio.org, or record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to us at backstory at virginia.edu. Or... Just call Lucinda, and she'll deliver the message. Ha, 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 But make it quick. We only got a minute for you. That's right, Peter. We want these to be a minute or less. Thanks a lot, Nina. I look forward to these scary stories. So, guys, I wonder if you could help me get a little perspective on something. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So when we heard the show was going to be about debates, I immediately thought about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are 1858 between, obviously, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate for the United States Senate from Illinois, and the incumbent senator, Stephen Douglas, the Democratic Party candidates. And at the time, the U.S. senators were elected by the state legislators. And so what they did is they decided to have a one debate in each of the congressional districts in Illinois. Right. And mm, these were okay. remarkable spectacles. They would roll into town on the train. There would be huge crowds in the public squares. And then they would speak and then speak some more. The opening <laughs> speech is 60 minutes. The, the second one is 90 minutes and then a 30-minute rebuttal. Hold on, Ed. And the they rebuttal would take t- is 90 minutes, the second person? <laughs> yep. So it's interesting because it is for the United States Senate. They weren't just talking about local issues. These were of national significance because they were talking about the future of slavery. So it's hard to imagine sort of a more riveting spectacle than in some ways the future of the nation. And people understood that something important was at stake. Hanging on these speeches repeated night after night, recorded by stenographers from Chicago newspapers who were reprinting them so they couldn't just say the same things, but they could also refine rebuttals to the other. Douglas doesn't really care very much about slavery per se or about enslaved people at all. 
And Lincoln can't show that he does too much, or he will have no chance of being elected by a white electorate that's very wary of protecting enslaved people. So they're walking a, a, a very tight wire and a very high wire. So Peter, what I'm wondering is, were there debates before this that had any of the same drama and significance? Well, I think there were, Ed, and to pick up on your metaphor, that wire strung across several decades of American history before the Civil War, and in many Mm -hmm. ways the issues that led to the Civil War were rehearsed at debates, such as the debate between Daniel Webster and Robert Hayne in January 1830 over protective tariffs, which is really a debate about South versus North or whether you're going to protect Northern manufacturers. But what made it famous and why school kids would memorize these speeches is the famous lines of Webster about the Union and how much he loved it. And this sort of patriotic rhetoric was really important. But I I think the important thing, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Lincoln Douglas in this context, is there's a tradition of rhetoric and oratory of public performance and that you have very educated audiences who are attuned to the quality of a speech They're looking for somebody who can really bring it home. And this is the way uh, that Lincoln made a future for himself and helped determine the future of the country. Yeah, Peter. In many ways, Lincoln very self-consciously was trying to live up to the standard of Daniel Webster. So, Ed, call me 20th century, but just give me the soundbite from these debates. Yeah, Brian, one of the most powerful moments, uh, Lincoln defending himself against the charge that he's going to lower the boundary between black people and white people begins with a quote that we don't like now, which is that I agree with Judge Douglas that he is not my equal in many respects, certainly not in color perhaps, not in moral intellectual endowment. And that just sounds like plain old 19th century racism. But listen then what Lincoln says, and this becomes in many ways the foundation of the Republican Party's appeal in the election of 1860. But in the right to eat the bread without the leave of anybody else, which his own hand earns, He is my equal, and the equal of Judge Douglas, and the equal of every living man. Mm, That's powerful, Ed. You imagine standing in front of thousands of men, the great majority of whom you know would not agree with you and pronounce that. That strikes me as one of the great moments in American history. And Douglas was a great speaker, too. So one of the things that makes this such a memorable moment is that Lincoln, even though he lost the election, or maybe because he lost the election, after the election, he edited the text of the debates and had them published in a book. And the widespread coverage of these things actually led to Lincoln's nomination as president of the United States in 1860 in Chicago. So, Brian, you cannot top that. That is as good as American debate gets, right? Well, I wouldn't want to top it, Ed, but I would point to some of the remarkable differences. And I'm a little jealous because what strikes me about the Daniel Websters and the Stephen Douglases and the Abraham Lincolns is that they're modeling and they're being elected based on the same skill set that they're going to bring to the U.S. Senate or to the White House. And in the 20th century, what we see increasingly is this separation between the politician who's running for office and the politician who's governing once he or she is elected. And I'd point to perhaps the most famous debate 
of the 20th century. That's John F. Kennedy debating Richard mm-hmm. Nixon in the first debate in 1960. They're running for president. And John F. Kennedy had to have a completely different skill set to get elected. He needed to be charismatic. He needed to look cool and calm on television than the skills required to actually be president, to know about nuclear throwaways, to go toe-to-toe in negotiations with the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. And so I kind of like the fact that your folks, whether it was Webster or Lincoln, they were modeling how they were going to act when they actually governed. And they had to persuade when they governed. Uh, and they were announcing policies. They are persuading their audiences, persuading each other. And uh, I think what you're saying is that uh, Kennedy and other modern politicians using multimedia want to persuade us that they, we can trust them. That's right. That we can like them. Uh, we're not really engaging seriously with policy. And not to be too elegiac, but the possibility of Webster-Hain, of Lincoln-Douglas, is that they might persuade each other. Nobody has any illusion that the persuasive powers of the people we are electing is going to persuade people on the other side of the aisle. Right. So one of the reasons that we had so much passion behind Abraham Lincoln is he thought there was a chance that he could persuade some people on the other side of the aisle once he got to Washington Mm -hmm. that maybe there was something that could be done to save the country. Today, we don't really have much of a belief that we're going to persuade people of the other party very much. And so debates have become something else, a demonstration not of persuasive ability, but of strength and of unwillingness to change their minds. In 1965, as Martin Luther King was organizing protests in Selma, Alabama, at the height of the civil rights movement, more than a thousand undergraduates crammed into the halls of the Cambridge Union Debating Society. They came to watch two American writers face off, British parliamentary style. The emotion that has drawn this huge crowd uh, tonight is this, that the American dream has been achieved at the expense of the American Negro. Arguing in support of that motion, James Baldwin. The well-known American novelist who's achieved a worldwide fame uh, with his novel, uh, Another Country. Arguing against the motion, William F. Buckley. Very well-known as a conservative in the United States. I'm the stress of conservative in the American sense. Editor of the National Review, one of the early supporters of Senator Goldwater. Wow, this sounds interesting, don't you think, Peter? Wow, bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, but I have a confession. I had never heard of this debate till I started doing prep for this show. But once I actually listened to this debate, what struck me more than anything is how relevant it is to the very conversations we're having about race today. Here Baldwin is talking about themes of police brutality, and across from him, Buckley is talking about themes of progress and notions of national identity. And patience. And, and patience, certainly, yes, yes. This is historian Seneca Vaught, who's written about this debate. I asked him about the motion that was up for debate that day, that the American dream has been achieved at the expense of African Americans. It seems like a proposition that's pretty hard to disagree with today. But what about in 1965? In 1965, many of these questions were unsettled. Today, um, we, we almost feel sorry for someone like Buckley for taking up the opposing side of that position. 
But I think James Baldwin saw that this question was a question that really got to the core of what America was. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <laughs> Could you sketch the two worldviews that were in play during this debate? Certainly. So James Baldwin is born in New York in 1924, but he always sees himself as a Southern son. His family had migrated um, to Harlem. On the other hand, um, Buckley was also born in New York in 1925, but in circumstances very different from um, Baldwin's. He was born into an upper-class, quite affluent family, spent his summers abroad. My great-grandparents worked, too. Presumably yours worked also. I don't know of anything that has ever been created without the expense of something. Both of them had very different worldviews. And in the debate, that comes to be a center point of distinction with Baldwin saying that the key problem here is different systems of reality that are impacting the way that we view the world and that we view the place of African Americans in our society. There's this point in the debate where he says, I picked the cotton. I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing. He literally is standing in for all African Americans. That's right. Over all of American history up to that point. That's right. But what I think is equally interesting and missing from Buckley's view of the world is Baldwin also stands in for people like Jim Clark. Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama. Who uh, infamously became associated with the repression of black protests in Selma. You know, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, you know, he likes to get drunk. You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use a cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example. And I suggest further that in the same way, the moral life of Alabama sheriffs and poor Alabama ladies, white ladies, that their moral lives have been destroyed by the plague called color, <coughs> that the American sense of reality has been corrupted by it. For Baldwin, the broader critique in this debate is about, is, is what I would characterize as a bitter optimism. It's critiquing the systems of reality to make America better or greater. And by contrast, Buckley comes across as dismissive and in some ways looking to get off good one-liners. There is no instant cure for the race problem in America. And anybody who tells you that there is is a charlatan and ultimately a boring man. And under, under no circumstances must America be addressed or and told that the only alternative to the status quo uh, is to overthrow uh, that civilization which we consider to be the faith of our fathers, uh, the faith indeed of, uh, of your fathers. From Buckley's perspective, he saw Western civilization and many of the ideas coming out of the Enlightenment as the basis of all progress, where I think that 
Baldwin would certainly agree to some extent that many of the contributions of the Western world were certainly noteworthy, that there were other elements and that there were other contributions and certainly other critiques that could be made. So for, for Buckley, he saw any critique of the existing thesis of Western civilization as a fundamental threat. Further than that, he sees it as a, a line in the sand that he's willing to fight um, violently to defend. If it does finally come to a confrontation, a radical confrontation between giving up what we understand to be the best features of, of the American way of life, which at that level is indistinguishable, so far as I can see, from the European way of life, then we will fight the issue. Uh, and we will fight the issue not only in the Cambridge Union, uh, but we will fight it as you were once recently called to do on beaches and on hills and on mountains, mountains and on landing grounds. And we will be convinced... By that time in the debate, as if you've, you know, seen the footage of it, people are, you know, uh, making noise and beginning to shuffle out because they're very disconcerted by Buckley's endorsement of violence at that point. Uh, somebody from the crowd yells out, you know, well, why don't you just let African-Americans vote in Mississippi? And Buckley seizes on that and says, I think actually what is wrong in Mississippi, sir, is not that not enough Negroes are voting, but that too many white people are, are, are voting. <laughs> Completely uh, dismissive of the fact that so few African-Americans in the South were even allowed the possibility of registering to vote. That's right. That's right. Well, to me, the good news is that a debate from 1965 can feel so fresh and so relevant to today's systems of reality or competing systems of reality, if you will. The bad news is (laughs) we're still debating the same (laughs) things. I mean, do debates do any good? If we're still debating the same clash of worldviews? That's a great question. And um, I would say that democracy itself is not really a destination, but it's a a process. And um, as long as the debates are taking place, as jaded as we may be as it relates to the outcomes, I think that's an important contribution to the way that we think and how we view the world. And uh, I think certainly Baldwin, while he would be upset with many of the things that we're seeing, certainly as it relates to the killing of African-American males and the need for a Black Lives Matter um, protest here in 2016, he would certainly be encouraged by people engaging fully in democratic discourse. What do you see of this old debate in the case that advocates for Black Lives Matter are making? That's a great question. And I think it's an unfortunate parallel that Buckley saw the affirmation of Black life during the 1960s as a threat to white civilization or Western civilization, as he would characterize it. And very much in the present, I see a lot of Americans misinterpret Black Lives Matter as the invalidation of other lives. So the response is, no, all lives matter. But really, at the core of the civil rights movement, what certainly Martin Luther King, Jimmy Baldwin, and many others were articulating was that the affirmation of Black life in the South was a platform that all other lives could prosper because, as King would, would often point out, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
So in ignoring the needs and the brutalization of Black people in the South, Baldwin was certainly arguing that this was to the detriment of American society as a whole. Seneca Vaught is a historian at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia. They voted in favor of the motion, the motion being that the American dream is at the expense of the Negro. They voted in favor of that motion 544 persons and against 164 persons. While William F. Buckley lost the debate, he remained a leading voice of American conservatism. He founded and edited the National Review, wrote more than 50 books, and hosted the TV interview and debate show Firing Line from 1966 to 1999. Buckley died in 2008. James Baldwin was a best-selling novelist, essayist, playwright, and civil rights activist. He once told the New York Times, I am the grandson of a slave, and I am a writer. I must deal with both. He died in 1987. For a link to the video of the 1965 debate at Cambridge Union between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley, head to BackstoryRadio.org. We'll also link to Seneca Vaught's article, James Baldwin versus William F. Buckley Jr. for the Soul of America. Let's turn now to the presidential debates of 1976. These encounters were significant for a few reasons. For one, it was the first time that a sitting president, Gerald Ford, agreed to face off with his challenger. And it hadn't always been that way. Lyndon Johnson didn't debate, neither did Nixon. This is CBS host John Dickerson speaking on his presidential campaign podcast, Whistle Stop. But Ford, for political reasons, decided to debate and... It sort of locked in the idea that the presidency was not so vast and so above the process that it meant the president didn't have to debate. And now no president can duck the debates. President Ford agreed to take the stage with Democratic nominee Jimmy Carter because Ford needed an image overhaul. Now, Ford had been Richard Nixon's vice president and ascended to the White House in August 1974 after the Watergate scandal led to Nixon's resignation. Ford then enraged millions of voters when he pardoned Nixon instead of having him prosecuted. Many Americans also viewed Ford as a bumbler, and it didn't help when he was caught on camera falling down the steps of Air Force One. Saturday Night Live's Chevy Chase had a field day, making Ford's clumsiness his signature bit. So Gerald Ford needed the debates to look presidential and to show voters that he wasn't the buffoon that Chevy Chase played on TV. The hope was that in... With these debates, the free airtime would help improve his situation. And it almost worked. Ford was unremarkable in the first debate, but his performance was good enough to boost him in the polls. Carter, on the other hand, came across as ruffled and unprepared. Carter also was recovering from a self-inflicted wound. During an interview with Playboy magazine, the born-again Christian admitted... I've looked on a lot of women with lust and committed adultery in my heart. By the time the second debate rolled around, Ford had overcome a double-digit deficit to pull nearly even with Carter. The momentum was on his side. But in that second encounter, Ford introduced the modern debate gaffe into our political lexicon. We'll let John Dickerson take the story from here. The topic was foreign policy. This was Ford's strong suit. 
he had been dealing with these issues all, you know, his professional life. And plus, he'd worked under Nixon, and now he was president, and so he had familiarity with all of the issues. Carter had charged that when it came to foreign policy, it was Henry Kissinger was the real president, and that was very offensive to Ford and his people because to suggest such a thing, that the president wasn't really in charge and that, that Kissinger was running the show was an offense to the office and uh, and a baseless charge, much the way people used to say Dick Cheney ran the George W. Bush White House. Carter, in this second debate, needed to show that he knew what he was talking about when it came to international challenges, particularly the great threat from the Soviet Union. And Carter did so in this debate, but his great victory didn't come from anything he said. He was helped by Ford who was asked by New York Times' Max Frankel, who was a Moscow bureau chief at one point, about the Helsinki Accords and whether they, in the Helsinki Accords, which the U.S. had signed, um, whether the Helsinki Accords accepted as a premise the idea that Eastern Europe was dominated by the Soviet Union. And here is what the president responded. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Uh, I'm sorry, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most of the countries there and and making sure with their troops that it's a a communist zone? I don't believe, uh, Mr. Frankel, that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. And the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union. As you could hear from Max Frankel, who, who is, I, you can't hear it, but if you were to watch the clip, which you can see on YouTube, he essentially does one of those like cartoon, like, like he can't believe what he's hearing. By the way, in Poland, I think there were four or five active Soviet tank battalions. I mean, so it wasn't just that they dominated Soviet Europe, I mean, Eastern Europe, and they were dominating Poland, but they had actual troops there. Anyway, John Osborne wrote in White House Watch, The Ford Years, Mr. Ford often fumbles his words. He often says more or less than he meant to say. He has often had to confess later. He didn't mean to say exactly what he had said. Never during his presidency, however, had he so completely and disastrously misspoken. Ford's pollster, Robert Teeter, who was watching at home in Ann Arbor, had his tracking polls going, and they confirmed that this was a disaster. Ford went into the debate even with Carter and was slowly gaining, Teeter said. But then we stopped cold. Cold. So Teeter calls Cheney, Dick Cheney, chief of staff to Gerald Ford, and suggests that Ford immediately had to acknowledge his mistake and issue a correction. We're working on it, Cheney said. But here is the crucial thing that we learned from this gaffe. Not, okay, huge gaffe, right? But the bigger problem is that Ford refused to correct himself. He said everybody knew what he was talking about, and those who didn't were just being purposely obtuse, and he wasn't going to budge. Ford here could have limited this to a 
garden variety misspeaking if he had immediately after the debate said, oh, well, yeah, well, you know what I mean. I was I was uh, trying to buck up the spirit of Eastern Europeans and show that we recognize that despite Soviet domination, we know that their indomitable spirit and indomitable will will not be dominable or dominated. When you're wounded, you must stop the bleeding immediately, wrote James Baker, the longtime political strategist and advisor to Republicans and Secretary of State and Treasury. This is the guiding principle of politics. This gaffe had knocked us off message and threatened to keep us there for a long time. Unfortunately, Henry Kissinger had called after the debate to tell the president what a wonderful job he'd done, which reinforced Ford's view that he didn't need to do anything. Only after it became clear to the president that his campaign was being sidetracked, six agonizing days later, did he speak up. The original mistake was mine, Ford said. I did not express myself clearly. I admit it. As Ford would later write, that was too damn late to have any impact. Delaying was the worst mistake I have ever made politically. I don't know why I was so stubborn. I don't know why I was so stupid in this case. Well... That was it for Ford. In the end, wrote Carter, if it hadn't been for the debates, I would have lost. They established me as competent on foreign and domestic affairs and gave the viewers reason to think that Jimmy Carter had something to offer. That was an excerpt from the Slate podcast, Whistle Stop, hosted by John Dickerson. You can find this and other campaign stories compiled in a new book by the same name, Dickerson is CBS News political director and host of the Sunday morning show, Face the Nation. Gerald Ford established another precedent in the 1976 debates, formal preparation. Since then, candidates usually practice for the big night by staging mock debates. There was lots of talk in the media about how much Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were preparing for their first face-off last month. Donald Trump is not doing traditional preparation like you'd see with Hillary Clinton or any other candidate, frankly. Hillary Clinton's campaign made it clear they were spending a lot of time preparing. Trump's campaign made it clear that they weren't. Clinton was clear and concise while Trump seemed largely unprepared. Clinton even got in a barb about debate prep during the debate. I think Donald just criticized me for preparing for this debate. And yes, I did. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. And I think that's a good thing. All of which made us wonder, what's it like to take part in a mock debate? So we called former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm to find out. In 2008, the Obama campaign asked her to play the part of Alaska Governor Sarah Palin in mock debates with Vice President Joe Biden. Despite being a Democrat, Granholm was a logical choice to play Palin. We were both women governors. There weren't a whole lot of us who were married with children at home. So I could relate to a lot of her personal circumstances. And because I knew her a bit, I could perhaps understand a little bit more where she was coming from. I asked Granholm if she thought about history as she prepped Joe Biden. I was especially curious to know how much she thought back to Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro's memorable debate with Vice President George H.W. Bush in 1984. There was a parallel to the debate with George H.W. Bush and Ferraro 
you wanted to make sure that he, he meaning Biden, did not condescend. So you're referring you're referring to the fact that Bush came across as really being patronizing towards Geraldine Ferraro. Yes, he did. He did. And that was part of the knock against him. And of course, there, the parallel is that Joe Biden was very experienced and steeped in, in Washington, having served his whole life there. Sarah Palin was so much more of an outsider. So the challenge for him was not to devolve into Washington speak and not to uh, not to mansplain to her. So you just, <laughs> he just had to watch it. And so we tried to poke him on that during the debate practices. Well, take us back to September 2008. How did the Obama campaign set everything up for the preps? I mean, how accurate was the stage? Oh, my gosh. This was, I mean, so I'm just, uh, I'm just a little old governor from Michigan, so I had never been involved in national debate prep before. I mean, I'd only been doing my own debate, right? My own debate prep, which was really sort of done in a shoebox. But this was something so we go to Delaware, which is where the debate prep happened, at, in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Sheraton Hotel. And they had reserved like a floor of, you know, the conference room, big ballrooms and all of that. You go in, they had built out the stage to replicate exactly to the inch what it was going to look like when Joe Biden actually went on stage. And they had people you know, in front of the debate stage who were doing the research, and they had set up the moderator's desk exactly as it would be. So we were amazed at how much <laughs> thought and preparation goes into these things as a general rule. What about your thought and preparation? I mean, how do you prepare to be Sarah Palin? Yes, yes, yes. I wanted to be Sarah Palin. So before going to Delaware, you know, they, they'd called me maybe three weeks before to ask me. So I amassed briefing books about her positions. I watched every debate that she ever had on YouTube. I, I joke that I became a paleontologist. I knew <laughs> all of the stuff that she was going to. And I, you know, you have to respect the character that you are playing, sure, right, if sure. you're going to do it authentically. So I got into the rationale, you know, why John McCain picked her, that she went against the establishment in Alaska. I tried to go to the original Sarah Palin for why she was picked in the first place. So I, I really studied. In Game Change, uh, that bestseller about the 2008 election, the authors write about you. Granholm was the perfect Palin, charming, folksy, disciplined, flirty, and mean. Can you channel some of that for us right now? No, I am not going to pretend to be Tina Fey being Sarah Palin. <laughs> But, you know, and I definitely came into this prepared to respond like she would. You know, I wore the glasses. Mm -hmm. I tried to dress like she would. I tried to embody how she was. And she is all of those things. Can you give me a few examples of ways in which you did try to throw off uh, Uncle Joe Biden during the practice debate? Well, I know I definitely tried answers that one would go after his family because <clears throat> he really obviously is such a family man and we wanted to try to get under his skin. We tried to really go after the softest of the soft spots, mm -hmm. right, to get him, see if we could get him riled up. Mm -hmm. 
And then I know we tried as well to to throw some non sequiturs in, you know, having answers that led nowhere. And this is the parallel with Trump, right? Didn't happen in the actual debate, but in debate practice, he was very, he was very good about just letting it happen and allowing the audience to take it in. With all the emphasis on zingers and one-liners, do you worry about the quality of these debates in general? Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, I think, and you have to be careful about the zinger, right? I mean, it's one thing to prepare a response that you know is well-crafted, and uh, it could even be a one-line response. But when people hear zingers, they think it becomes a comedy show of some sort. And that I worry about, you know, because not, believe me, politicians all want to be Al Franken, but we aren't (laughs) for a good reason. We're not there. So you have to be able to know how to deliver a line. And it's not always easy for for somebody who's not practiced at delivering lines, who's used to, you know, practiced to speaking in, in, uh, you know, in, in prose. One last question. What did you learn uh, as a public official from channeling Sarah Palin and participating in the prep for the vice presidential debates? I uh, definitely came to appreciate that the audience for for these debates is not the moderator or the other debater, but the citizens who are watching, and that all of your answers have to be directed at at what matters to the people on the other side of the camera and not the other side of the moderator table. And how do you do that when you're standing up there with the glare of the lights and the moderators in your face? Uh, Preparation is so important. Got it. Not to practice is malpractice. (laughs) Governor, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. It's a delight. Thanks so much for having me on. Jennifer Granholm is the former governor of Michigan. Peter, Ed, I think I've watched every presidential debate going back to the Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960. And what strikes me about them is how cordial and civil the candidates are to each other. Not so much anymore. I'm sure you've seen the most recent presidential debates. I've never seen the kind of nastiness and accusations of lying that we're seeing this year in the presidential debates. Help me out. Be real historians and tell me if we've hit an all-time low or we're returning to some kind of norm that existed for much of American political history. Well, Brian, earlier in the show, we talked about the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the power of a well-reasoned argument to change people's minds. But in the 19th century, the broader political culture wasn't really all that high-minded. You read the newspaper that was for your party. You went to meetings that were about your party. You drank with each other to celebrate the party. Your entire identity came with your party. And the nature of that is that you're engaged in kind of a quasi-military onslaught against the enemy, and you might brawl in the streets even. You wouldn't hesitate to talk about 
an illegitimate child in the big public campaign. So certainly, I think from 1850s through the first decade of the 20th century, this kind of identity was all over the place. Peter, tell no. me it was more innocent back in the beginning. <laughs> uh, no, I wish I could, guys. Uh, if anything, the 1790s, the very beginning, the first party system, Republicans and Federalists, it was the worst ever. And uh, deep polarization between Federalist supporters of uh, the British and the Great World War against French revolutionaries and their Republican friends of the French Revolution. But there is a big difference that I'd like to point out, and that is there's very little information in the 1790s, in the early period of the Republic. And that information was really important because it seemed so portentous. The little you did know might be about how the world was going to end. Uh, <laughs> now we got so much information, it's very hard to find our way through and around it. And Peter, here's the grand irony. You know, for centuries, quite literally, Americans thought that more information was mm -hmm. going to take them to the promised land of consensus. And the irony is that all this information that we have available to us is being put to the purpose, in many instances, of returning back to the 19th century, 18th century state of war. That's too much information, Brian. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> That's going to do it for today, but head to our website and debate this episode online. While you're there, share your stories of your local legends for our Halloween special about the history of horror. You'll find it all at BackstoryRadio.org or send email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Melissa Gismondi is our researcher. We have help from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Liz McCauley, and Peyton Wall. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.